Welcome everyone to the Premium Investment Leader Series. Premium is pleased to present thought leaders in the investment and advice industry. I'm Damien Chilney, Head of Investment Managers and Governance at Premium, one of Australia's leading specialist platforms. We're honoured to have with us today Mike Martel, who is a State Street Head of Portfolio Management for the Americas, who's here from their head office in Boston. Mike has been uh, with State Street for over 25 years, working both as a portfolio manager and with the Investment Solutions Group. Joining him is Raf Chowdhury, who is known to local investors as a senior investment strategist within the same Investment Solutions Group for the Asia-Pac region, based in their uh, Sydney office. The Investment Solutions Group is responsible for asset allocation and security selection across various client mandates. And State Street is one of the oldest financial institutions in the world, founded in 1792 and today managed in excess of $3.5 trillion, that's in Australian dollars. <laughs> Premium is the initial launch partner for State Street's new range of multi-asset separately managed accounts, which brings together their asset allocation expertise along with scalable investment solutions for investors. Today we'll discuss a revolution in managed accounts, beginning with the foundations in the United States and now used by advisors and investors around the globe. Thanks, gents. Welcome, sure. uh, welcome to uh, the investment series. Really happy to be here. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Thank you. Hopefully Melbourne's uh, treating you very well. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> it's not raining for once in <laughs> Melbourne at the moment. They didn't tell me it was going to be winter here. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't part of the deal. <laughs> Hopefully you brought a big jacket. Yeah, exactly. That's how we got you down here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and gents, we want to uh, today really uh, focus on uh, the, the manager count revolution, the American mm-hmm. revolution throughout all of that. And we want to start on that and kind of evolve around the rest of the world and look how it's adapted and uh, found its way also here in Australia, where we've seen uh, huge market growth and huge interest in, in this area. And uh, it is something that we have advisors and investors all the time asking us about. So kind of going back to the start, you know, looking at the American experience and the U.S. really pioneered managed accounts. And we can kind of talk about what that actually means. But can you walk us through the early days of this revolution? You know, what happened at the start of all of this? Sure. Well, first and foremost, when we think about managed accounts, you know, they they go by a number of different names. Mm. In the U.S., more often they're called model portfolios or, or, or something similar to that. And you know, going back even to back to 2008 is when we first started seeing demand, but it was very, very slow. It didn't ramp up for a number of years. And when you think about the trends that are driving these, it's really folks are looking for institutional caliber type of solutions that bring much more efficiency to their business, but as well are, are, are sophisticated. And when you start to unpack what a model portfolio is, it's, it's really simply a prepackaged asset allocation or set of asset allocations that can do a few things. One, they can cover the whole efficient frontier for you, so from very conservative to very aggressive, or they can be thematic. So we've seen growing interest in income portfolios, inflation-sensitive portfolios, and some more and more cutting edge things that are coming out more recently. So, you know, getting back to what's driving the trends, I think first and foremost, it's efficiency. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the challenges that are facing investors today, they're getting squeezed. Everyone's getting squeezed on cost, yep. right? So everyone is looking at ways, how can I run my, my business more efficiently? And having access to cost-effective model portfolios is certainly a good solution. The other thing is time, 
And, and that's one thing that I think everyone can agree is that it doesn't seem to be enough time in the yep. day. Very valuable commodity. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. One of the cool things that we've done is we've seen a, 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 a survey that went out to a number of users. I think it was what, over 760 different users of model portfolios or folks who were considering using them. And of those who had adopted model portfolios, they found that they were saving on average about 12 and a half hours a week. And those 12 and a half hours were being put back into the business, either better connectivity with their clients or actually sourcing new business. Mm. So incredibly powerful motivation from an efficiency perspective. And I think technology is the other side of this. I mean, we've all seen robo-advisors coming in, better connectivity. Firms are really starting to embrace technology, but I, th I still think you need that personal touch. Yeah. So I think Great. that model portfolios kind of give you that solution whereby you can grab an algorithm and you can attach it to a really well thought out investment solution, but that also gives you that space to actually reach out and understand your clients' goals and objectives much yeah. better. Because now you've got an extra 12 hours a week, don't exactly. you? You know, to uh, spend on it. Yeah. Exactly. And there's been similar studies in Australia as well, too, in, in that regard. And I think Australian advisors are getting nearly 20 hours uh, a week efficiencies. Uh, even more efficient. Yeah, I love that's it. right. That's correct. <laughs> correct. Um, but just kind of going back, you talked about 2008 kind of being, you know, the start or maybe a watershed, you know, movement right. out of that. I suppose there's certain factors out of that period of time as well, which looked, uh, everyone looked for more efficiencies. Yeah. But kind of going back, like what... How has it evolved over the last 25 yeah. years, you know, from, you know, what have been the iterations along the way? Because yeah. we've got countries or different regions around the world that are going through this evolution. So we kind of want to find out what those iterations are right. and work out where we are on right. that journey too. I would say one of the things that was most striking to me is if you were to look at the industry in the U.S. even five years ago, and if you were to look at the top five players in model portfolios. Yep. So from an advisory group basis? Uh, from the, the, the folks who are actually providing the IP for the model portfolios yeah. themselves, okay. right? It. Yeah. Um, I would say three of them are no longer in business. Mm. And what you saw was this evolution whereby model portfolios were certainly embraced early on by much more boutique niche type mm. of managers. Yep. And it was a very slow evolution before you saw the big asset managers actually wake up and realize that this was a phenomenal opportunity. Mm -hmm. And we've only really seen that in the last five years. And one of the things I said was institutional quality solutions. And really what I mean by that is governance, mm -hmm. um, compliance, all of those things that everyone finds very painful. They're very necessary. They're very, very yeah. necessary. Yeah. And it's funny, coming out of 2008, you think of two trends that came out. Compliance, I mean, everyone started spending more on legal and compliance. Mm. The other thing that came out of 08 was much more transparency. Yep. So around yeah. the world, yep. people were really starting to understand, what am I paying for the solutions that I'm getting? So that's part of what's driving cost. But again, the other side of it is that compliance function. And if I were sitting on your side of the table, one of the questions I would be having for model portfolio providers is, are you a good partner for me? Mm. 
are you going to be here in 10 years? Because I need someone, my clients need someone who's going to be here. It's a long term outsourcing solution, I suppose. Well, that's that's exactly it. And the way that we think about it, it's a partnership. it, It can't be. All right, I'm going to hit the button on my model portfolio, send it, and I'm done. Mm. There's ongoing engagement mm. because at the end of the day, financial advisors want to understand what's driving this particular model. If it's an active model yeah. and you're taking positions, well, what's driving that? Yeah. Do you have a view on U.S.-China? How's that impacting Australia? How is that coming down through the model portfolio offering? Because if I'm the advisor, I want to bring that intel to my clients mm. as well. Because they can see it as well. That that's the other part. You and know, the transparency. Right. You need the information at hand. Right, yeah, it's true. Um, I've seen some uh, recent presentations uh, you did to our local advisors, uh, State Street, in in the recent past. You talk about a global trends in mm-hmm. uh, in managed account usage. So is that, I think you got four things. You know, regulatory we kind of touched on, yep. technology, yep. macro factors, and then demographics. Yep. I don't want to delve into the demographics one. Sure. Uh, I think the others, you know, we've touched on already. Tell us more. What what's supporting the demographic trends for uh, SMA usage? Yeah, I, I think there's a few. I think one on the technology side is certainly if you look at the millennials mm. and, and as they're transitioning through their career, they're building their investment nest eggs. These are folks that grew up with technology much e- more easily. Than folks like me and Raf, maybe. Well, yeah. maybe not Raf. It's been on the cutting edge. It's a little bit of gray there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but folks who are much more comfortable with technology yeah. and who are not afraid of embracing it, mm-hmm. I think that's one part of this. I think the other part of this is from a demographics perspective. If you look at the number of financial planners out mm-hmm. there and you look at how those demographics are shifting, that profession has certainly seen some changes. Mm, okay. Right? So if you think yeah. about how much more challenging it is to be a financial planner, financial advisor these days, from a regulatory, from an education requirements, all that bar continues to be raised higher. Mm. And then you look at other demands or other areas that young people can be pursuing. So I think that part of that is when you're running a business and it's harder to actually find and keep financial advisors in their seats, you need to have that efficiency. You need to have a solution whereby you've got more time to go out and grow that business mm. knowing that you've got a really sophisticated investment offering behind you. Yeah, I think there's similar trends to what we're seeing here mm. as well. And there's been different factors which have mm-hmm. kind of brought it on, but you know, I very much understand those demographic trends that you've portrayed. The other thing, and you alluded to this a little while ago, Damien, it's it's people are better informed. Mm. I mean, that's the good and the bad about the internet and and information. You mentioned that people want to know what's going on with China. They want to know what's going on with the US. And I think that the demand that you're seeing from the end client on their advisor has gotten nothing but growing higher and and more rigorous. People want to know, they want to be picking up the phone, and they're going to be asking harder and harder questions and expecting really good answers. Yeah, correct. And they can see it on their phone. They wake up in the morning and they can see the trades on there and they they want to know. Right. Right. This is very true. We fast forward now today, so we've kind of uh, gone through the evolution piece. Mm 
Uh, fast forward today in uh, the US, Scott, what, what are you seeing today, like into the next five years? Where do you see those usage trends? What's mm-hmm. the, the next evolution piece? Well, the, the interesting thing to me has been when you look at the business and you think about where the demand is going to be, what's surprising to me is that it, it continues to be a lot of basics. Mm. Very, very strong, robust asset allocation is what people are looking for. People believe in the benefits of diversification. They believe in low cost. I mean, if there's no other certainty in investing, if you could deliver a more cost-effective solution, people are going to be on board with that. But you're also seeing an increase in some of the thematic offerings. One of the things to look at would be income. And if you think about where market conditions are right now, I mean, look at the bond market right now. Yeah. I mean, what are you getting out of a 10-year on Aussie? Like, yeah. below one? Yeah, yeah, correct. Uh, I think we're at 80. Yeah. 80-something basis yeah. points. Yeah. So when you think about that and you think about someone moving into the retirement phase who actually needs income, having more multi-asset class, nimble income solutions mm-hmm. where people are going to be looking at them on a year-over-year basis and saying, look, where am I getting the best bang for my buck, not just from a yield perspective, but also relative to expected return and risk, I think that kind of an income thematic is gonna become increasingly important. But also you're starting to see the building blocks are evolving too. Yeah. I mean, they're not just mm-hmm. passive anymore. Yeah. I mean, you're getting much more active, you're seeing more thematics coming in as yeah. well. So I think the, the path forward in the industry is going to be a continued uh, growth in sophistication. Well, at the same time, I, I don't think cost compression is going away. Yeah. Uh, where, where does it keep on going well, down after this? I, I do think it has to level some zero off. cost ones as well. I, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, some of the building blocks yeah, that are coming out, yeah, no cost, yeah. at, at least an introductory low, low rate. Unbelievable. Uh, I know. Yeah. I, but at the end of the day, you still need to run your business. Yeah, correct. So yeah. to, to me, that's not a great long-term yeah. strategy. I, I do want to touch on uh, ETF construction and index mm-hmm. construction later, because I reckon that's a, it's a really interesting area. But just continue to whip around the world and we go around to the various regions. So we've, sure. got to talk, we've talked about the American experience, another very large market being Europe. Right. Now, we probably haven't seen the same kind of take-up in, in a way in, in Europe, so what have been those factors? How's that market different uh, to the US? All right, I'm gonna defer to my friend who actually lived in London. Yeah, okay, Raf, tell us all about it. Yeah, so Europe's, um, so I guess the interesting thing is that, you know, the US is is ahead of the curve compared to the rest of the world. Um, And and the the pleasing thing is that Australia is not too far behind. Yeah, I I was gonna say, very, the similarities I was hearing out about the journey and kind of the the, If you think about those trends and things that are driving it, there's a lot of, uh, similarities to the Australian market. And Europe probably is the outlier here because mm. it's slightly lagging. Mm. Um, so we're starting to see a little bit more uptake in, in this space within Europe, but um, it has been challenging. And, and part of the reason for that is just the defragmentation of Europe kind of geographically, mm. kind of bringing product to market. Um, and so that's always been a bit of a hindrance for, for Europe. Um, technology's kind of been a, a little bit on the slow side, probably because it's been, um, you know, while they've tried to address other more significant issues. Um, and I guess the other hurdle that's really kind of impeded the process, which they're slowly overcoming at the moment, is kind of from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, okay. um, and again, that feeds back into that defragmented kind of European market, trying to find um, 
a model that kind of meets all the different regulations for each different country has been challenging. Mm, right. um, so you so might even do it like on a product basis, but then yeah. you've got different regulatory regimes in a, yeah, each Regu- country. Regulatory yeah. regimes, t- yeah. different tax environments yeah, yeah. Uh, that need to be considered um, for end investors as well. So um, so those have kind of been really things that have kind of um, stalled the mm. progress in Europe or model portfolios, but we have more recently seen um, some kind of more significant progress being taken place. So yeah. um, there's definitely some some um, forward movement and traction yeah. being. Mm-hmm. Is there any leading countries that are leading the light out of Europe in particular? I guess the UK probably because it's it's a independent market. If you, mm. I mean, I don't know if you can really call it part of Europe anymore, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a matter of time. A couple of yeah. months, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the UK has kind of uh, been moving forward in this space for a couple of years. So. Um, I left the UK about six years ago and, and there were kind of model portfolios and things mm. around at that time. So, um, and more broadly, we're starting to see a bit, bit more to kind of development and take up across Europe. So. Sure, okay. Um, now let's bring it all into Australia. So uh, mm. Raf, I think it's uh, probably <laughs> time, you know, that we, we kind of bring in all these learnings into to an Australian perspective, yeah, I very much hear that like those major factors that, that Mike talked about earlier on. I think they're they're, they're here. How we we've seen some good numbers uh, come up in terms of usage. Uh, the trends are really really positive. Yeah. Um, how are we seen, especially when you're going out speaking to people uh, out in the marketplace? Uh, how are you seeing the the adoption, the implementation, the the interest levels? So um, probably over the last five years, we've definitely seen a, a pickup in, in kind of interest within model portfolio space. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing uh, partly driven by kind of the, the trends that we talked about. So the advancement in technology, bringing, uh, bringing these products to market and making them more accessible mm-hmm. has definitely been a, a, one of the significant kind of progress points over the last five years. Um, the regulatory environment has, is good and bad. Um, so there's pros and cons to it, um, but it kind of, requires more openness and transparency, which, you know, model portfolios are kind of perfect way to kind of deliver that. Um, but we're definitely seeing kind of progress in this space. Um, the demographic, sh- demographic shifts are kind of a little bit challenging. Um, I think we alluded to earlier, you know, it's not just um, broad demographic shifts that we're seeing. When you actually drill into the demographic shifts within the advisor community, mm, right. um, that's actually quite impactful. Um, and especially with the recent regulation, regulatory changes that we're seeing that are requiring education, education yeah, yeah. You know, higher hurdles to entry mm. um, for advisors, um, stricter compliance requirements in terms of how much time um, advisors now need to spend with clients and make mm. sure that they properly understand um, the requirements. Those are all kind of hurdles to kind of maybe from an industry perspective, um, but the model portfolio space is actually stepping in to, f- to fill that gap and help address mm. some of those regulatory burdens that we're yeah. that are facing. So, right. And even if you just want to look at it basically of uh, you might need to spend time on uh, your yeah. own self-education piece, you know, yeah. there's a time saving there that can be allocated into uh, that pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. The education piece is, is yeah. probably one of the key bits that's kind of underestimated, right? Because it's mm. not just on the, I mean, obviously it's on the advisor side, yeah. ensuring that you, as an advisor you're fully across um, all the different offerings that are out there that you can yeah. bring the best kind of offering to your clients. On the client side, it's happening as well, right? And this is supported by advisors and by investment managers in this space. You know, the level of education material and support that's being brought to market has been increasing, right? Yeah, so yeah. That, that, that kind of raises the level of education mm-hmm. of the advisors and their clients. Yeah. Um, 
and, and that's kind of a real key kind of in terms of helping the adoption, um, given the transparency of these kind of solutions. Yeah. Um, you know, they really kind of help fill in, fill in that hole zone. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. All right, so we're going to go kind of slightly back uh, okay. to ETF building blocks because now we've kind of got the landscape. Uh, now let's drill into uh, some of the detail on sure. it. Um, State Street pioneered uh, ETFs, I suppose. We did. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. were the first out, uh, and also in Australia mm. as well. STW being the first one. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah correct. Um, but today, so we started, you know, very, you know, basic building blocks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, broad beta strategies out there. Today, we have so many offerings out there. So um, we've got uh, like a, a kid in a toy store type of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I just want to get down into well, what's some of the, the most innovative, uh, some of the stranger ones that you've seen yeah. Uh, yeah, in the ETFs landscape. So... The, the, the first two that I'll talk about both have to do with technology. Mm-hmm. So certainly we've seen just an outpouring of ETFs that give you index-like exposure to thematics like AI, yep. robotics, um, you know, any kind of artificial learning, anything that has to do with getting exposure to you know, green energy would be mm-hmm. another one. So those are kind of interesting and innovative that, that are coming up. Take that a step further, and you actually are seeing people launch ETFs that are actually using AI in order to select companies that, so that basically they use AI to sift through 10K filings, and they find companies that are engaging in forward-thinking types of industries. So think green energy, think the next generation of security, and they're actually wrapping these these, these uh, indices into these investment products. So they're very niche, but they're very interesting. Yeah. And they're really cutting edge. Yeah. Um, I would be remiss if I did not mention that there's also been an outpouring of cannabis-based Yes, ETFs. yes, yes. Uh, What's well, the ticker code YOLO, I believe? I, 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 yeah. have, no idea. Yeah. I have no idea. I have not looked at these, yeah. but uh, yeah. but it was funny. This, I was, is, this is on the back yeah. of um, legalization across a number of states in the yeah. US. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I think yeah. that's a big trend. Right? Colorado, yeah. yeah. Well, Colorado yeah. was yeah. definitely a pioneer, but... Yeah. Uh, my home you state is Massachusetts. You smell it out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I, I think those are certainly interesting. The you know lower cost is is, is coming in, but I think choice is is also um, good and bad. Mm. And when you're building model portfolios, you need to have some mechanism in order to sift through what's going to be most impactful to the end client. Mm. Now it's fun to talk about the cannabis ETF. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's a very niche product. I'm sure that it'll actually do okay. Um, But when you look at a lot of these innovative launches, to me, the first thing that you need to ask yourself is, you know, is this vehicle going to be here for a while? Mm -hmm. And so I think that in the industry, what you're always looking for is like $100 million in assets. You know, do you get to 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 that level first? So that's always a good way to think about screening ETFs. And the other thing just gets to does it have a place or a role within your overall investment thesis? So certainly if you're gonna be building a portfolio that's geared around innovation and technology, it's fine to have some of these you know, enticing new ETFs, but you also have to understand 
know, what are the exposures that I'm getting here? Mm -hmm. What kind of factors are coming into my portfolio? It's great to go out and buy all these AI ETFs, but what do they look like when I throw them into a risk model? Because really, at the end of the day, that's what's most important. Do I know what my risks are when yeah, I build exactly. this portfolio? Yeah, and that's it's interesting because now, so we've got these tools. How do we all? How do we use them all? Right. And there's a temptation just because there's more stuff out there. You, there's a temptation yeah. that you just want to use it. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So talk about. Well, now we've got. I suppose temptation is one thing, mm -hmm. but also uh, like if, if we break down even a. Um, a global ag uh, ETF, you know, mm -hmm. we can get different maturity uh, yeah. profile uh, yeah. ETFs, break off the credits to the treasuries and yeah. whatnot. So we've got so many more tools, you yeah. know, at disposal. So how are you putting together all this? What's kind of the evolution that you've seen from right. a portfolio construction point of view right. as the tools have kind of changed over time as well? I would say from our perspective, we like the granularity. Mm. So when you talk about something like the ag, mm. I love the idea that I can look at the ag and I can understand what are the factors that are driving the ag. Mm. So I can look at duration, I can look at the curve, I can look at spread, I can look at securitized country exposures. And now I've got a toolkit that lets me build a better version of the ag mm. if I want to. Yep. Right. Yep. I mean, it's great. I have. I'm, I'm sure that there are a number of low-cost global ag ETFs out there. That's great. But it also gives the professional investor the ability to actually try and build a better mousetrap mm. if they if they want to go down yep. that route. And I mean, I think that was lacking in the first generation. The first generation was all about broad exposure, cost-effective. Yep. Now, from a practitioner's perspective, mm. that's the other side of, of the whole ETF phenomena, it's people are getting more and more granularity, better tools in the toolkit. So I can see that that has certainly been a driver of the usage of ETFs, not just in model portfolios, but also just more broadly from yeah, that the financial advisor community. Yeah, with discretionary buying, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I like to call it uh, passive-aggressive investing. <laughs> um, so we, we are seeing a, a lot of that, that breaking up of, you know, a broad base and used in very uh, active ways. Right. MSCI World, another great example. Absolutely. You break it down into about four or five constituent yeah. parts and, and you're seeing people allocate accordingly uh, throughout it. So I think that's... Another one to look at is just the opportunity set. To your point, you mm. break it down to regions, yeah. countries, yeah. sectors, industries. I mean, how far oh, do you want to go? It's, yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I mean, you, you could really want to break it down to probably 30 constituent parts Absolutely. if you wanted to. Yeah. 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 yeah, bit of overkill, but uh, you certainly could overkill, <laughs> and probably not what you're going to see in the model portfolio space, yeah. because I think again, there's that balance between That's right. sophistication, yeah. but practicality too. Yeah. I mean, you do need to be able to explain what's happening in the portfolio. Sure. Um, so you know, be, be finding that middle ground is is, is really important too. Mm. No, no, great, great. Um, you know, staying on the topic of ETFs. Um, I think we've taken it for granted, maybe even in this conversation as well, that ETFs are there, mm -hmm. ETFs are a big part of the industry, ETFs are going to get used. Um, let's have that all as assumed knowledge and sure. they're, they're a part of it. Um, they're there, you're going to use them. You've got a lot of different choices out mm -hmm. there. You've got a lot of different indices, you've got a lot of different issuers, etc. Okay. 
You walk us through. You talked about $100 million as True. being a kind of one marker. True. I'm really interested in this space because we've got so many new ones coming on all the time as well. Right. What are the things that you're looking for in you know an ETF counterparty or an mm-hmm. ETF security selection from that point of view? What are you considering before they make it into your portfolio? Yeah, I, I think first and foremost, what you're looking at is the investment thesis. What, what are we trying to accomplish? So starting right? with that so first it, of all. It, it absolutely yeah. starts there. Yeah. And because you're going to have everything from, you know, more vanilla, you know, well-diversified strategic mm-hmm. are going to be on one end of the spectrum. Then you've got your thematic. Mm-hmm. And depending upon that thematic, maybe you're, you're looking to play uh, some kind of smart beta. Yep. So if you're looking, then you, that's going to point you into different directions. And I would say that when you're thinking about how to choose ETFs, I think the default oftentimes is the big players. And those are the big players that are now in the space. We all know their names. Mm -hmm. Um, So oftentimes what you're looking for are those big players because they're going to have the characteristics that you kind of like. So cost is important. Liquidity is very important because when you're thinking, especially if you're using them actively, those ETFs, you want to have something that actually trades well. You know, the expense ratio was one thing, but if you're trying to trade something that's very niche... You give it away. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think practical considerations mm-hmm. come first. So things like cost, trading volume, um, and then you get into certainly asset class fit, the fit for your portfolio. Uh, what's the role that each of these ETFs is playing? And then you get down to the really practical consideration, which would be, you know, look, is it a partner that I trust? Yep. Because again, this this is a long-term partnership. So whether it's a model portfolio or the ETF itself, do I trust the company? Do I think that they're gonna be in business for, for, for a while? Do I trust that they're gonna do it the right way? Mm-hmm. And with that, I think those give you a number of different dimensions that you can use to assess just about any ETF that comes out. But you do have to pay attention as well mm-hmm. um, because things do change quickly mm-hmm. and you certainly can have that trend. And $100 million is just a rule of thumb in the industry. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, I'd lo- and I'm sure that many of them love to hit a billion. Why not? Yeah. Um, but I think that that tends to be a screen that we see a lot of people use. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to operational in sure. a second. Raf, just a comment. Is 100 million like a similar number you look at from an Australian perspective? Or, you know, we also dealing with different magnitudes for think, the respective markets? No, I think you're dealing with slightly different magnitudes there. I think yeah. the, the U.S. market is a lot more advanced and you've got a lot more mm. established um, Larger size ETFs. Fair point. Yeah. Um, the the Australian ETF market's about two hundred ETFs. Um, there are some significantly large ones in the billions there. Yep. Um, but when you're looking to construct a portfolio with broader exposures, not all those exposures are going to be having um, have ETFs available. that are going to have that level of right. uh, size to them. Mm-hmm. So the other factors that Mike mentioned, you know, the liquidity, um, the, the counterparty, um, become really important. I think one other thing that you really need to think about is that. Um, not all ETFs are created equal, oh. you know, and devil, <laughs> yes. devil is in the detail. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so yeah. you know, looking at index construction across different ETFs that serves the same asset class, you know, that's quite important as well. Yeah. I think yeah. one thing that I'll just rebound on that, that Raf mentioned, when you think about liquidity, I think that, again, what's interesting about ETFs is that you've got the two layers of liquidity. Mm. You've got the actual shares that are trading in the market, but then you've got the liquidity of the underlier. Yeah. So the yeah. ability to actually create new shares. And, and again, 
having a partner that actually is well experienced and has a good process in terms of doing that is also really important yeah. too. So yeah. yes, to your point, yeah. 100 million, simple rule of thumb, but again, having having a partner that can actually deliver the liquidity of the underlying yeah. is really good. Yeah. I think you're, you're less concerned about the size mm -hmm. on more the traditional beta type exposures mm -hmm. where, yeah. because the ETF is actually just buying underlying securities on the right. exchange, right? Yeah. So you know that there's underlying liquidity there mm -hmm. that's in the stocks um, as opposed to on the on the ETF itself. Um, the ETF has still has access to that liquidity. So, you know, it, it's one of the, the metrics we look at, mm -hmm. but it's it's not the end all of Mm -hmm. thing. So it's, it's really looking about across those multiple metrics on kind of assessing ETFs. Yeah. I think there's a couple of cautionary tales as well, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, and we talked earlier about kind of, you know, the, the more niche kind of um, cool kind of ETFs that you've got out there. Um, one of the things that we've seen globally is in terms of um, ETF product trends is probably um, uh, leveraged ETFs. Yeah, okay. And, and I guess that's kind of where you need to be a little bit more cautious and where advisors and investment managers on that educational piece really need to step up to the plate. Um, especially on on the more niche type of leveraged products that we're seeing, as opposed to just broad-based kind of an index being leveraged, where you're getting into, you know, very tight sectors that where an ETF's only going to be holding six or seven stocks yeah. and it's leveraging those up as well. Yeah. We're starting to see a few of them. Yeah. And so there is that kind of there's two sides to it mm. um, that you kind of need to consider. So yeah. you know the breadth of ETFs that we're seeing is great. Uh, in the Australian market since 2013, I think, for every one ETF that closes, we see eight new ETFs open. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's a growing market, um, and that does mean but that we're getting a lot of But there is closures as well, too. That's, there is closures that's the other well, thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think we sometimes gloss yeah. over the, that piece, but closures do exist. Yeah, yeah. and I think if you, uh, you know, Mike uh, alluded to this earlier, mm -hmm. right, um, they need to be commercial. Yeah, you know? um, correct. Yeah. And interestingly, what we've seen is, in the domestic market at least, um, over the last four or five years of the ETFs that have closed, I think about 50% of them have been commodity-based ETFs. Yeah, yeah, So there's been kind of a very specific mm. kind mm. of um, area where they're not really picking up, and that's probably more to do with, you know, the domestic exposures that most investors already hold and and um, and, the, and the beta that they have already to that kind of commodity market. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we always see this cycle kind of in product issuance as well. Yeah. You know, there's a whole lot of things to match immediate demand. Yeah. That somewhat dissipates over time, and then yeah. you get closures and so mm -hmm. forth. Yeah. Yeah. Just want to get back on, um, you know, lifting the hood a bit. You know, from an operational sure. point of view, when you walk into an ETF counterparty, well, what kind of things do you want to see from an operational point of view? The real back end stuff, not sure. on market stuff, a back end yeah. operation. Well, what you're seeing is it's it's a very similar depth of due diligence that you would see in, in any other investment now. Mm -hmm. So where you're, you're, as you're moving forward with model portfolios or, or the ETF building blocks, you need to bring the same rigor that you would bring to any investment. So not only are you looking at the investment team, you need to understand their process, um, you know, what's their heritage, but you're also pushing hard on the operational aspects, yeah, yeah. the back office, the risk controls that they have in place, the governance that they have in place, especially if you're doing anything or you're looking at an active product. So one of the things that is becoming much more in demand is anything that's, call it systematic or quantitative, mm -hmm. there's much more scrutiny on model oversight. 
So I think that there's been a few flashes in the industry where those models have not been overseen very well. But that's certainly something that's evolved over the last few years and something that we're seeing much more in due diligence meetings as well as people kicking the tires, not just on that specific product, but on the broader firm. Mm. So you're also pushing and asking business continuity type questions, senior leadership, dedication to the business, all of those characteristics that get back to the theme that we've had going here is that these are partnerships. Yeah. You know, while you can think about them as products, it's, it's an investment. And if you do it right, you're investing with a partner who you're going to be with for a number of years. Thank you very much, Mark, right. coming all the way from oh, Boston. Happy to be here. This was fun. And Raph all the way from uh, Sydney, anyway, uh, <laughs> with uh, great uh, time delays as well. So yeah. thank you very much, gents, for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Damien. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.